They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two Bald Pastors. Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinabaldo. And I am Joe McGarry. We serve as pastors in congregations in the New England Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or the ELCA as we commonly say. Today we welcome Pastor Clint Schneckloff to the podcast. He serves as pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Fayetteville, Arkansas. He blogs at Lutheran Confessions. He's the founder, administrator, and convener of the ELCA Clergy Facebook page. And he is the author of Mediating Faith, Faith Formation in a Transmedia Era from Fortress Books. Welcome, Clint. Glad to have you here on the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be talking with you. So one of the things, uh, Clint, that I really enjoy is connecting with you through your blog, Lutheran Confessions. And in it, I really get a sense of who you are and what you are passionate about. And in a recent blog post, you described yourself as a missionary that is also a pastor. Now, can you talk a little bit about what's the difference between just being a missionary or just being a pastor, and, and how do you combine those? Well, yeah, when I say that, which um, I started kind of articulating it after um, my wife and I served as missionaries of the ELCA in Slovakia, um, is, you know, I think there are different kinds of pastors. There are different kinds of, you know, there's different callings within the church. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the ways that I live out the call to be a missionary, I guess, is because I've never felt super called to go and serve as a pastor where it seems like the majority of the other Lutherans are. Mm-hmm. And so um, we're, we're really living that out now uh, by uh, serving as a uh, you know, serving a parish in Arkansas. There are 19 ELCA congregations in the whole state. Wow, wow. Um, as compared to um, Decorah, Iowa, where in that one zip code there are 21 ELCA congregations. Yeah, right. Where I, where I went to college. <laughs> <laughs> Decorah's not that big. And not only that, but in our, in our state, um, a majority of those congregations have less than... Um, 50 members. Okay. Wow. Um, so like our, our congregation is kind of an exception to the, the normal size. So we're just a small um, group. But as, a, as, as I think about myself as a missionary, there's that whole thing of kind of like sentness mm-hmm. uh, being sent. And um, I feel like we've been sent to be among, um, doesn't mean that nobody else is Christian down here, but we represent a kind of or a way of speaking of our Christian faith in a way that's pretty different than the dominant um, form of Christianity in the area. Yep. And you'd be surprised how many non-Christians and unbaptized people there are even in the Bible Belt. That certainly is the world we live in now, isn't it? And maybe yeah, it always it was. Maybe it always was. Yeah. And so then I think that plays out in how I do ministry some um, I, I think of, it's not like there's anything par- in particular different necessarily, but I just think of being, pastoral ministry is being embedded. It's a smaller subset of the wider thing of being called a missionary, at least for me, mm-hmm. and, and gets me doing things sometimes that are outside the orbit of maybe what somebody who really thought of themselves as a strictly a parish pastor might do or how they might do their ministry. Great, great, great. And, and I think part of that, uh, in, in the sense of being a, a missionary, is to help congregations become missional. Uh, and how do you see, a, a, how would you define a congregation being missional in, in the context of, of being the church today? I frame it this way. I think that many pastors, and really actually probably many congregations, and I'm painting with a broad brush here, so obviously not everybody falls into this. Think of the pastor as the one who does ministry and the congregation as the recipients of the ministry. Mm -hmm. And in that model, it makes sense, for example, that like when you leave one congregation and you go to another one, you should cut off relationships with the people that you're with because somebody else is going to come in and be the minister. Right. And you shouldn't yeah. step back into the situation where somebody else is, etc. 
that's, I think, a kind of traditional understanding of congregational ministry with pastor ministering to the parish. If we're in mission together, or if we're all on the mission of God, we've been called to the Missio Dei as the people of God, then we all have different roles within that mission. You know, you can go with like the Ephesians thing of some are evangelists and some are teachers and some are prophets or whatever. Yep. Uh, in that model, all of us are on that mission together, the pastor together with the whole people of God who have other gifts. And so then I tend to think of all of our ministry that way. It's not that I'm going to minister to, but we're all ministering with each other. That resonates. I love that. That's really great, Clint. Yeah, so often we get caught in those uh, places then where the expectations are, well, pastor, you should do that. Um, well, aren't we all trying to do ministry together? It's a, it's a good reminder that it's not just uh, to keep the church going either, but it's the whole idea that God sent us here. And uh, this is the community we're in to care for and love yep. and embrace and welcome. Right. And if you if you go with that mentality, you know, obviously there's going to be exceptions to this. There are some things that I do on a weekly basis that nobody else in the congregation really does because this is what they hired me for. Like, right. by and large, I'm the one who goes to the hospital or some of those kinds of things. Um, but what it does mean is that if we're in mission together, uh, there's a much greater level of mutuality. Can mean, for example, go back to that thing of leaving a parish if um, if you've got somebody from a former parish who thinks of themselves as being in mission with you in the same way that you're in mission, and they've got a question for you about, like, what, what are you reading right now, or what do you recommend, what are you seeing that's available out there for Sunday school curricular resources or whatever, I don't think there's anything wrong with that kind of mutual sharing because you're all aiming for the same goal, which mm -hmm. is how do we do good Christian ministry together. And I like to re I really, what I love to do is I, I love to try to get out together with my parish in ministry together. So like last night, I had a big group that went with me to the prison and we had Eucharist. We do that cooperatively with the Episcopalians. Oh, great. Wow. That's here awesome. in Fayetteville. And there's something powerful about it, not just being the pastor going in and doing this on behalf of the parish, but all of us in it together. Uh, just to expand on that, you wrote recently something about um, developing a more robust Lutheran missiology, especially mm -hmm. in conversation with, with other groups uh, within the Christian branch of faith. Uh, could you just share a little bit what you kind of mean by that, reflect on uh, what a more robust Lutheran missiology might look like? Well, the first step in having a robust Lutheran missiology would be actually to have a missiology. <laughs> Touche. Yeah. <laughs> you got to start Which, somewhere. Um, I remember on <laughs> in the Facebook group, the LCA clergy group the other day, David Householder said, if you if you do a search for the word missiology in the LCA clergy group, you get like four hits in the last three years <laughs> or something. And, nice. Uh, <laughs> um, I, you know, can you name a seminary that has a program in missiology. So I'm, I'm pretty serious, actually, even though I'm joking when I say that we would just need to have one first, like people would actually talk about it. Like even the fact that we're talking about it on this podcast is a step up from the normal way Lutherans might talk. Because if you ask somebody to make a list of what are the things that make you a Lutheran, I don't think anyone would list missiology normally in like the top 7,000 <laughs> items on the list. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah. So, yeah, okay, so one ro way that it might be ro more robust is if people would list mission before jello. Mm, yep. Or um, that they would actually know what missiology was. There's a couple of other things, I think, in terms of... Uh, you're, you're mixing around two words here in the question, at least the one you wrote to me, um, yeah. that I kind of separate. Uh, I think of evangelization as somehow separate from missiology. Um, of course, although they're related too. But it, the, one of my favorite ways to have a more robust missiology is to remember that missio comes from the a phrase, the missio dei, that it's God's mission that we're joining. And so another important uh, step of having a ro robust Lutheran missiology is to remember that God has a mission. 
God's on a mission and we're joining that mission. And then another step along the way, I think, is to realize that there are many Lutherans around the world who think missiologically much more than we do, and we ought to learn from them. And I think that's especially true uh, in the global south and in Asia right now, where some of the fastest growing Lutheran churches have very robust strategies for reaching, expanding God's mission in their countries. So do you think it's a lot of churches, uh, instead of joining in to God's mission, we're, we're trying to instead put our own mission out there and, and not really being faithful to what God's calling us to do? Well, I'm not really sure, but it seems to me when people use the word missional, by and large, they think they're using that word to, to describe what they think is the most effective new kind of attractional ministry. Yeah, right, right, right. right. So it's actually not miss- missional yet. It's just, oh, this, this is going to be the most effective way to attract people back to us at some point. Uh, and th- there's nothing like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. A, a healthy organism or organization wants to grow at a reasonable rate and attract people around it. And, and so none of that is like wrong per se, but it certainly is a misunderstanding of, I think, what was, you know, the, the original development of the term missional, which is supposed to be, you know, a portmanteau of ecclesial and mm-hmm. mission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, was it, was it Ralph Winter? Who was it that coined the term? I can't remember who coined the term missional, but... Um, he really uh, coined that term because he wanted a f- the, the church to fundamentally understand itself as being sent. Mm. And so that's why you, you, know, you combine missio, the, sen- um, the mission of God and God's sending together with ecclesia, the church. Right. Um, I don't think, by and large, that when people are thinking about missional strategies, that they really are thinking about themselves as sent in that sense yet right, right although there are little pockets and groups that are it's something i think for many of us to think about and to say okay what what does this what is god calling us to do how can we join into god's god's mission uh and being faithful to that and you know i think a big part of it is um essentially letting go mm-hmm that um, real sentness, re- really being sent on God's mission, means kind of uh, a taking on a uh, a weaker sensibility, um, a more humble posture in relationship to the world, so that you're open to um, who you, and what you're going to encounter in the world, and then and then kind of become a part of that more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, something that you had suggested in your uh, recent uh, Christian Century article was to kind of incorporate a more uh, collegial model of of discovery, kind of like under the lines of what we all had to endure for clinical pastoral education, where you you would kind of write up a situation mm-hmm. that you faced and and discuss it with colleagues that could give you some feedback. Uh, you want to. Share some of your thoughts on that. Uh, what went that look like, or what experience have you had in the past with that? Who would maybe oversee it or help direct out those kinds of conversations? Well, yeah. So we're already starting that. Um, we're gonna. In fact, I'm hosting a session tomorrow night on Blab. Um, that's going to be clinical evangelical education. I did a first session, like more of an online teaching class, last month, and so I've been building a roster of people that are interested in this and we're going to get on uh, blab is kind of a new um, video conferencing platform mm-hmm. that i'm finding really it, it's really dynamic you the format is is, is intriguing for one um, you can have up to four conversation people on video together mm. and then there's a whole there's a chat stream on the side so in real time people can be watching these four people in conversation and they can be contributing to the dialogue through the chat on the side. On the other side, on the left, is um, you can be tweeting oh, cool. wow. content nice. from the conversation. And as many people as want to can come on and watch the stream live. 
So we're going to host a conversation tomorrow. I've got two people set up in two seats together with me. And then there's going to be a fourth seat that's kind of like a hot seat where we'll ro rotate people in and out depending on who brings up something that we want to ro roll them in. And we're going to post this time for the first one because it's kind of a new concept for everybody. We're going to use um, some sample verbatims, uh, like just you know sample dialogues yeah. that people have submitted of being in a conversation that they felt like they were trying to be evangelical in some way, but they couldn't quite figure out how to do that well, or they wish they would have done it better. And then we're just going to workshop those verbatims right there in that conversation. And the cool thing about Blab is anybody can create a Blab account and start one of these conversations. And if you go on, on there, it's a community. It's like Facebook, right? So where you can go and you can see somebody posted this or that. And then you can go in and you can follow that thread of conversation or you can actually, you know, jump in the room essentially and watch the conversation. And what I'm hoping is that this, these initial blabs that we do will inspire a few other people to start hosting conversations like this kind of regularly. So you could have a kind of a movement of people just deciding to get together via video conferencing or face to face in their congregations or wherever and just bring a verbatim of a faith conversation that they had that I, they wish that they want to talk talk about and see what they can discover to do better the next time. It's a cool concept. And yeah, so at least right yeah. now we're not going to build any kind of like hierarchy or like formal. Like I, I'm not, I don't think I'm interested in turning it into a clinical model the way that it is in hospitals, but I do think a, doing, having a clinic around a conversation you've had yeah. can re reveal a lot of things for you as yourself. Who were you in that conversation? A mutuality of... of interested people that also have it on the line for them too. So there's a good collaborative piece to that by the sounds of it. Right. Right. The other cool thing about using Blab is it's inherently evangelical in the kind of the classic sense of that term. Since there's a lot of people on Blab and they just pop into conversations, if you host a really interesting conversation, they may stick around and they then they may observe you working out how to confess your Christian faith better. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a good. That's good. But you, it's not like you're evangelizing them directly. Yeah, it's kind of like being a fly on a wall, so to speak, in a in a conversation that you might be interested in hearing what someone might have to say about their their faith without really kind of being involved in the conversation. Right. Exactly. Yes, and that's how Blab works. Uh, if you were to take this conversation we're having right now on a podcast, if it was just live streaming on YouTube or something right now, and people could you know click in and listen. Right, right. That's what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I'm kind of hoping is is just maybe a grassroots expansion. Anyone who's interested in doing better at having evangelical conversations will just assemble a group of interested people and start doing it. There don't have to be any experts. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, any group of people who is intentional about wanting to be a better presence in the conversations they're in. That's all the expertise you need. Yeah. Great. Thank you for starting that conversation. I think it's going to be helpful to, to many, many people. Yeah. So you have released a, a, a book, Mediating Faith, and you discuss the idea of the liquid church, the blending of the virtual and the real, and the use of online gaming as a third place to connect with people. Uh, what have you learned and what do you continue to learn as we live more and more online while also living in, the, in a physical place and time? Well, I feel like what we were just talking about is the best living example of that. Yeah. You know, we're, yeah. we're already a living example of Liquid Church right here having this conversation. You're sitting in Connecticut and I'm in Arkansas and we're doing church together. Blab is like that, too. Uh, when I host this conversation tomorrow night on Blab, there's a couple people that will call in that are going to be from my own parish. So I can provide a resource like that for people who are interested within my local congregation. And then it also uh, op opens up possibility for conversation with people really anywhere. A couple of the people that are going to be online are actually from your neck of the woods, I think. I don't know if you know Eric Warringer. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, he's going to be one of the conversation partners. And then the other is a woman from Minnesota. So there's this blending together of the way we're all doing church together that I think is kind of the first wave of this, I guess you could say. 
I don't know what I think. I, I messed around with the gaming stuff for a while, and I'm still pretty intrigued by it, although I'm there less than I used to be. Like Second Life, for example. Yeah. Yep. The one thing I would say that's true across the board, so this was true of Blab, and it was also true of Second Life, and it's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in digitally mediated church life, is because it provides access for people who have accessibility issues. Mm. The first day I got on Blab, and was just I was just messing around with it to figure out how to use the platform. I, I created a little blab chat, which means I was on the screen by myself. Um, you know, <laughs> I told you there's like the four right. yeah, yeah. video feeds that come in. And you've got essentially like kind of like a digital room that then other people can click on and join. And within 30 seconds of creating that, I was just like looking at it. I was messing with the texting features, all that kind of thing. This gentleman joined my group and asked to be added to my um, group at, on video. And at first, it was just a little bit weird, I have to say. Like, it's one thing to start chatting with somebody online you already know in video. It's a little bit different to meet somebody digitally that you don't know. Um, I don't know, just because you think maybe they'll be naked or something. Um, <laughs> this, one, this gentleman came on, and we started talking, and he's from Brooklyn, lives in Brooklyn, and really needed to talk. He was a homebound uh, former mail delivery man mm. and is in a wheelchair. And he had discovered Blab and probably some other resources as ways to have community, even though he was stuck in his apartment all day. And so we just talked for like 20 minutes, and he like taught me a little bit about how to use Blab, and he told me some of his life history and where he lived. And I realized that I had just happened upon a way of being available uh, to a person who felt like he needed more human connection. And that's the way Second Life is, too. So a lot of people who use Second Life maybe have Tourette's or are blind or have some other kind of thing where being in a digitally mediated context actually improves their ability to communicate with other people. Asperger's. Yeah. You can, you can set the parameters around communication better, and so that's helpful mm -hmm. uh, for, for people that come from those that are dealing with those kinds of things. And, and then also just people who are ostracized. So like when I was on Second Life, one of the biggest groups that I gathered with was there's a couple of LGBT communities. I used to pray at St. Matthew's by the Sea, which is a prayer chapel in Second Life. And a majority of the people that come there are um, LGBT Christians, many of whom live in places where they can't be out where they live. Wow. They're gay and they live in like rural Utah or something. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I to me, that's a big part of it is digitally mediated um, social media allows us to do ministry among people who otherwise sit way at the margins of regular community life. Yeah, I like what you're saying, too, about being in real time. I, I, you know, Facebook is such a popular platform, but it's also you go and come back uh, to it. You know, you can say something and walk away. Right. And or people chime in that aren't really part of the conversation or somehow connecting to the original thread of the post, not not to what other people are saying. And and you were pretty foundational in creating uh, a nice forum several years. Has it been five years already since you started the, the clergy group? Something like that. I think it's actually three. Really? It feels like longer. <laughs> it feels like 20. In that, in that it's such a, a regular part of so many of our lives now. So currently, I looked this morning, there's... Uh, 6,155 members on that, and I think you had said elsewhere, it might have even been in your book, there's about 7,500 uh, actively serving pastors. I mean, that's a nice medium for all of us to get together in a space that's not possible, really, mm -hmm. otherwise. Uh, but with this ability to be in the same place at the same time, actually, it it's, just seems a lot better than that, where you kind of say something, leave give your two cents on a conversation you're not really a part of. As the mediator of that group, uh, what have you kind of learned over the years as far as people's interactions or things you might do differently now with some of these other platforms like Blab? There's a lot of lessons. It's hard to narrow it to one. Maybe 
the one that I have to constantly remind myself of is you really can't direct or tell a group of 6,000 people what to do, or you can't get them to do what you want them to do. It's too large of a group. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for that matter, four people, right? Like, you, so you can't. You can't tell people what to do. And whenever I've tried to organize the group to get them to do something, it typically hasn't worked. But what you can do is you can put stuff in front of them that interests them more or less. Mm-hmm. And there's an art to that. And if you can figure out the art, that can be a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had times where something has really caught the attention of the group. And then it really has shifted the conversation overall because of the attentiveness of the group to that topic. It clearly tapped into a major need among ELCA clergy just because I, you know, many people had tried to form ELCA clergy groups at smaller or other levels with like lesser degree of engagement. And this one, as soon as it started, people were like all in and engaged with it. And it, but it has it, it, so it t- tapped into a need, but I think it does have mixed results in a sense. Like it has totally united some people in the church in ways that they never had been before, and provided that kind of context. Um, I'm I'm curious to see what the long term ramifications are of it. I don't think we we're going to know that yet. Yeah, the sociological thing I find interesting are the p- pastors who have come in to the group having been in seminary and on the group, and now part of the group is, is clergy, I suppose. And then others of us who have spent years more or less in isolation or with the, the, the clergy in your area you would associate with. Just kind of the way you come to conversations differently, having either been more isolated or are feeling like you, well, of course you're already part of this larger entity. I, just, I find that interesting. What what do you see is the difference? How how are they engaging the, that context differently? I, I think some of the natures of the questions or the or the things that are posted. I mean I mean you know some things are are deeply theological and deeply rich, and some things are kind of asinine at times. But I, I think some of the questions, you know, like what do I do if the toilet breaks? You know, I think people who have been on their own before would know you just call the plumber. You don't need to consult. In other things, I think you say, oh, I've been working on this for a long time, and I'm really missing something here. And you've got all of a sudden a large number of people being able to say, yeah, have you tried this? And part of it's personality, but I think part of it's just um, what you're expecting from your colleagues, I think, a little bit, too, based on what you've experienced already. One of the things I regularly hear is I hear from um, seminary faculty who make use of um, conversations in the ELCA clergy group pretty regularly. It's like it provides this rich set of data without any real work on their part to have to survey the, you know, clergy in some other way. Yeah. 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 Um, The accessibility of the bishop's office is is, um, much more rich and connected um, that I first experienced as a pastor just because of the nature of the way communication was at the time. Um, you know, you had yeah. to call and set an appointment and come in or or maybe meet in a third place. And now you can just uh, message them <laughs> or you're in a conversation with them on the same topic. And and uh, maybe uh, it's it's not your bishop. It's a bishop from another place of the country and they have more wisdom to share from a different context. And that part of it is is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have, you literally can, um, that is something that's completely new is, so like the CEO of Augsburg Fortress, the CEO of Portico, the bishops of our synod, they're all in there. And if you're noisy enough, you can actually get their attention and even a response often, which I don't think was the kind of thing you could have done five years ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. And being connected to Augsburg Fortress as a, as a board member, what are some of the new and exciting things that Augsburg is, is work, working on that you are able to share with us? Well, I think the coolest thing that they have going on right now is they're making a shift to the consumer market in a new way. Mm. So if you remember, Augsburg Fortress used to be a kind of church supplier. Right. Um, at least I'm old enough to remember yeah, right. that when there were stores in the 80s and the 90s and um, you could go to an Augsburg Fortress store 
Yeah, we used and to they were like purpose. a standard church supplier, so they'd have you know like baptismal candles and certificates and all that kind of stuff, in addition to being a publishing house. And what happened in the late '90s and early 2000s is that that became um, financially untenable for them to continue. Augsburg Fortress was losing money for years and living off of the sale of some assets from the combination of the two publishing houses, basically. And so they were getting to the end of where they could do that. And they, they were willing to do it to a degree because the, it's not just, it's not a for-profit venture, you know, it's a business that's for the church. Um, but they've got, they're wanting to be in this for the long haul. And so they made some shifts over the last uh, five to seven years that really have gotten out of that church supply market altogether um, and shifted to trying to be uh, what they think is their um, central uh, Christian calling, which is to create resources that enliven faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice. You know, that they, w- they want to be a producer of of that. And if you go on to the Augsburg Fortress website, you'll see some of their mission, you know, statements around that. The Fortress Press, for example, wants to produce, you know, theology that matters. And so they want to be in the business of really producing these new things that enliven faith. So for the last five to 10 years, they've been focused on getting that done well. And one of the big launches during that period was Sparkhouse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is one of the sub, um, there's basically, there's three, there's the three main imprints of uh, the umbrella organization, Augsburg Fortress. There's Sparkhouse, there's Augsburg Fortress, and there's Fortress Press. Uh, Fortress Press is the academic line. That's the kind of stuff that, you know, sells to, goes to college classes and that kind of thing. The Augsburg Fortress line is all the worship resources and music resources. And then Sparkhouse is the branch of Augsburg Fortress that's focused especially on developing kind of creative, cutting edge youth and young adult educational resources. So like Sunday school curriculum. But then beyond that, there's like those animate videos that maybe you've seen. That yeah, are, those, are, those are great. Yeah, inter- interviewing um, emerging Christian leaders about you know, substantial topics. And so that side of the um, publishing house uh, is the the part that's really grown. If you go into Augsburg Fortress now, the biggest part of their offices now is devoted to these graphic designers and creators. Mm. Um, You know, that's a huge shift that's happened in the organization. All of the stuff that they were producing during that time was still a, a it's called a b2b model of sales so you're se- you are selling your product as a business to another business so like okay. good shepherd lutheran church calls up sparkhouse and wants sunday school curriculum and sparkhouse sells good shepherd lutheran church sunday school curriculum what we haven't been in uh, and in a way actually we got out of in in the old way was b2c business to consumer. The the latest thing, which you have seen, if you've been on their website or you've seen some of their publicity and advertising, is that they've now gone to marketing uh, Spark Family resources, which are resources that are designed for consumers to purchase for their home and their family that that do the same thing that, that Augsburg Fortress has always wanted to be doing, but be doing it at the level of the family or home life. So they've got stuff coming out, especially around their Bibles. You can get the little, like, you know, smaller storybooks of Bible stories. Um, if you all have Roku, you can go on Roku and you can subscribe to Spark Family and you can watch videos on there. Oh, wow, that's you awesome. Watch, that's great. Uh, Slug Terra or Phineas and Ferb. Um, and they're going to continue to come out with that kind of B2C product over the next number of years. And that's like a big shift. And even Fortress Press is moving in that direction also. So in addition to the Fortress Press academic line, they're now rolling out a Fortress Popular line, which is a line of um, books that's attempting to be geared more towards a, a popular audience. Wow, that's that's a really exciting. 
It's encouraging, uh, especially the B2C stuff you're talking about. I mean, one of our uh, foci on this podcast is to try to help people connect their faith to their lives in real ways. And to be able to put some resources in front of people is really great. I'm glad that uh, our church is working on that and uh, glad you're a part of it. That's really great. You've done some work on catechumenal stuff uh, in your congregation, and you call it this week, this text, if I'm not mistaken. Our lives, this text. Our yeah. lives, this text. <laughs> close, and, uh, close, could close. Could you just share how, that, how that's been going? I've always been intrigued by the catechumenate um, and just trying to get it started. It, it, I've fallen flat a few times. Um, just could you share how that's gone and what it's looked like uh, for people out there? Well, we were mentored into it by some helpful uh, people, which I think if you're if you've had some false starts and are wanting to kind of develop a catechumenal process, it's good to have some mentors. Um, so, uh, I talked a lot our first year with Paul Hoffman, who mm. published a little book on the catechumenate. He now has retired from his congregation in Finney Ridge in Seattle and travels and does some consulting work around it we did a, a pilot of it through the summer. So we practiced hosting a catechumenate among ourselves so that we had a leadership team who kind of got a sense of what it was going to be like when we started in the fall. And um, Good idea. Neat. Uh, that was nice. And it helped us get a sense of the power of the process. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the catechumenate is that there's nothing in the catechumenate that's not already in most congregational life. So when I start to describe it to people, they're like, well, we already do that, or we already, we already have that. And I'm, they're right. It's like there's nothing rocket science about having a meal together, uh, doing a presentation on the faith, and having a Bible study. Those are all things that churches do. Um, but the, intention, the intentionality of it is that you're providing a safe um, space for inquiry for newcomers. And you do that around these key things. So we um, start in the fall with some periodic gatherings where we have a meal. And then um, I'll do some different talks basically after the meal that are kind of like what maybe a lot of Lutheran pastors do for new member orientation. You know, like I might say, give a history of the ELCA or Mm -hmm. uh, yep. brief talk about the liturgy or whatever people really are wanting to learn about. I'll ask, you know, what do you want to hear or talk about? And then we break out into small groups that are facilitated by our, by our lay people, by sponsors. And um, that, that's why we call it Our Lives, This Text is because we say when you get into that room and you're, you're reading the gospel from Sunday morning, the only experts you need are your life and the text in front of you. you and, the, and the Spirit works in the midst of that. One of the key components there, which I learned from Paul, and I found it to be very, very important, is I don't go to any of the Bible studies. Mm. Those are led by the lay people. If I walk in the room, an expert has walked in the room or a perceived right. expert. Right. And it changes the conversation altogether. Yeah. Um, yep. And uh, it doesn't mean that I have more expertise. If, if anything, my expertise just makes everything more complicated for me and everybody else. So it's not like you're in a better position once you know more about the Bible. Um, <laughs> sometimes it's dangerous to know more about the Bible. But uh, what does happen by not going in there, I do the dishes and, and or fill in for the nursery if nursery care fell through or something like that. Yeah, that's great. Um, but what, what it does is it provides that safe context for, for inquiry and for conversation. We do that periodically through the fall. And then in the winter, we get more intentional. So by the time of Epiphany and Lent, we're meeting weekly um, on Sunday nights. And um, we're orienting people towards the Easter Vigil, having conversations with them about whether they're going to be um, affirming their baptism or uh, actually being baptized. And then we're doing some other things too, like matching them with sponsors in the congregation. We're still open to new people being added all through the fall and epiphany. And then we kind of like, quote unquote, close it at Lent so that it can be okay. this intentional process for the people who have come up to that point. And we, there's some, if you go, you know, actually Augsburg Fortress publishes a resource on this. So you can get a, a kind of a handbook on leading a catechumenate. 
there's some blessings you do each Sunday and you give people a Bible and a hymnal and do this blessing as they get matched with their sponsors and all that kind of thing. And then all of that leads up to the Easter vigil, which is this beautiful, beautiful night. Um, and I don't know why. I think part of it is intentionality, like that we're watching for people and mm-hmm. inviting people to baptism in the waters of baptism. But I think it's also just the Holy Spirit. But we've had 14 children and five adults who were baptized at the Easter Vigil. Wow, that's fantastic. And it's been that's about awesome. like that each year in some form, plus all the people who affirm their baptism are coming in kind of more traditionally as like transfer members or or whatever. You know, but it doesn't have to be that big. I know congregations who do catechumenates for two people, and it's just as important to cultivate faith that's meaningful to one person as it is to do a dozen. So right. uh, I think figuring out how to do a catechumenate is worth it at any scale. Right, right. That's awesome. This past Easter visual is kind of taking off of of the, the baptism cue for, for that service. Uh, we had we had four children who were baptized during that during that time, and that's a that's a perfect night and and a very moving night to have something like that to have the congregation gather around the font and and to welcome these these folks who have gone through that process into the life of the congregation. Yeah, and it is it's a it's an art it really is an art, and and it, I'm always constantly like learn, trying to figure out how to do it better or worse. Uh, like last night, I took a group to, um, I took our catechumenal group, or I invited all of them to go to the prison with us. Mm. And um, less total people came than would have come if we were just having our regular Sunday night meal and Bible study. But I kind of anticipated that because it's it's intimidating to a lot of people to consider going into a prison. But we still had like a dozen people who came. And for most of them, it was their first time ever being in a jail. Mm. So what we did went in, we led the worship, and then we spent some time afterwards processing it. I kind of treated it as an out event. You know, 3DM talks about up in and out, and out is yeah. where you go out in mission in some way. And it's important if you if you go out with people to give them some space to process the out experience. So I don't know whether that was a good idea or not. <laughs> to to uh, I think it had the catechumenate to go to the prison because I intimidated some people probably, but it was like perhaps life changing for a couple of the people who went. So that kind of experience I think is very moving for folks. I I spent some time in seminary as uh, shadowing a chaplain in in a prison and brought a brought a group from seminary to the prison to talk with some of the inmates and and everything and and. It was it was a very moving experience, and I mean, it's not like what you see on TV. We don't really know the the whole process and and what it's all about. So, uh, you know, I think that's that's an amazing thing to and a gift to give to folks um, who are part of the congregation or are thinking about becoming a part of the congregation. Well, Clint, you're a creative guy, and uh, your first book, Mediating Faith, was uh, pretty helpful. What are you working on now? My the working title of my book right now is is a boring title. I hope I can come up with something better, but at least kind of gives a sense of the content. Um, secular faiths, plural. Hmm. Weak Christianity and posthumanity. That sounds interesting. And I'm, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope it's interesting. Um, I'm intrigued by. Uh, I I've been really intrigued ever since I read A Secular Age by Charles Taylor a few years ago um, by his thesis about secularization, which is slightly different than the popular notion of secularization. The popular sense of secular is that secular means um, non-religious. So we categorize the secular people as like the nuns and the duns. They're um, secularization in Taylor's sense, although he outlines three different ones, and he has the third one is the one that he prefers to focus on, is secularization has created the conditions for the possibility that God is not axiomatic, which is different than saying that secularization means God is no longer axiomatic. It, it, it just creates the conditions where that's one, so you can live as it, so uh, we can now live in a way we never could have before as cultures without reference to God. 
Mm. Or we can live with reference to God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so people do all of those things and everywhere in between. And um, the contested spaces between all of those different possibilities. And it wasn't contested in the past. So that's what's new. Um, you always had a few outliers, you know, like Voltaire or somebody who was the elite intellectual who uh, argued against the existence of God or something. But for the most part, it was just assumed God or some kind of pantheon was out there. So I, what I am interested in writing about is I, I feel, I'm really dissatisfied right now with the conversation in American culture around this because literally all we do, the best we do is we, we do these boring sociological studies over and over again where we tell ourselves that there's more and more nuns and duns than ever, but that's the best titles we've come up with, this really interesting group of people, which now makes up a third of the population. Right. And that's a really frustrating. Like imagine if you just described all Christians as being like, like their title was not Muslim. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. You know? Yeah. I mean, what, does that, what does that tell you about It's not them very descriptive. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. No. So we need a taxonomy or, a, or something of the, the secular, and um, we need to know how to relate to it much better than we do as Christians. And I also think that a lot of the most popular sociological work being done right now, like the statistics are, are controlled by religious people with agendas like Barna, mm -hmm. maybe yeah, even thanks. Pew. And so I, I feel like we need more people doing some work on intentionally thinking about what it means to be in this, in a kind of a post-Christian or, or, or secular era. And I think the way forward is through some theological resources that are already embedded within Christianity itself. So um, thus the weak Christianity thing. Um, there's a lot of great theologians who have, you know, articulated this in some way or another. I was just reading Kierkegaard last night. Here's a quote for you. I just had written it down. Christ has no scepter in his hand, only a reed, the symbol of impotence. And yet at that very moment, he has the greatest power. As far as power is concerned, to rule the whole world with a scepter is nothing compared to ruling it with a reed, that is, by impotence, that is, divinely. In mm. the divine order, the greatest impotence is the greatest power. And uh, you get, you know, Bonhoeffer had some similar ways of approaching this. I think womanist and feminist theologies come at this in interesting ways. Um, Gianni, Vat Gianni Vattimo, Italian Roman Catholic philosopher, who coined the term weak Christianity. Uh, Caputo with his weak God. Yeah, There's a lot of stuff out there that's like this, and I think that that's the way forward with engaging the secular um, on one level, how to make sense of it theologically. And then I also think that we need some work at just allowing the um, community that's secular to, to articulate itself and define its own terms let them tell their own story yeah right mm -hmm. uh or not even just let them i mean that's even that sounds yeah, <laughs> yeah. sorry i said I that because even that sounds patronizing right. <laughs> um we'll allow you to articulate your point of view yeah. <laughs> right yeah isn't that from a far gone era yeah <laughs> but doesn't that isn't that kind of where we're at yeah yeah it's exactly exactly it let us tell you what you're like, is I think what a lot of the statistics are doing. So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm kind of working on this. And it's, it's intimidating as a topic. Um, that's why I, was, I found that quote from Eric Auerbach that I mentioned earlier um, so helpful when he said that the fact that he was constrained and he didn't have access to a good library, that it helped him write the book and maybe mm -hmm. he wouldn't have written it. When you try to bite off the secular, that's like a big That's topic. enormous. Yeah, um, that's huge. Definitely. So I got a, the, I'm working right now at narrowing it down to a manageable yeah, right. form. Well, we'll look forward to that. Thank you, Clint, so much for being with us this afternoon. It's been great. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. If people want to you know, connect with you and hear a little bit more about what you're doing or, or some of these other resources you mentioned, what are some of the best ways for people to kind of connect with you? 
Well, I share everything over at um, Lutheran Confessions, which is my blog, lutheranconfessions.blogspot.com. A lot of the stuff we talked about today is on there in some way, like the blab stuff and the clinical evangelical education, the evangelism stuff, so they can kind of scroll back through. Okay, great. Great. Well, thank you very much, Clint, and and, uh, look forward to hearing more about what you're working on and, and connecting with you again soon. Thank you. Well, that was a great conversation we had with uh, Clint. What do you think of it, Joe? Any good takeaways? Yeah, I, I thought it was great, and, and he had so much to share. One of the things that I really was drawn to when was he was talking about the clinical evangelical education that he's doing, especially uh, the Blab conversation that he's doing. I think it's important for all of us to really know how we talk about our faith and how we share our faith, and if we don't have really a sense of what to say or, or really know how that conversation went to, to have a community or have a group of people to come back to and say, you know, this is what I said. And, you know, did this work? What could I have I said instead? Or, you know, when, when this topic came up, this is how I felt. This is how I was feeling. And, and what does that really mean? You know, I was really one who really enjoyed my clinical pastoral education experience. I know not everybody does, but uh, I thought that insight into my identity and that formation to how I claimed my pastoral identity was really critical in, in my, my formation as, as a pastor. What about you? Uh, what, did, what did you think uh, from, from our conversation with Clint? I really enjoyed our conversation about uh, missiology, and to have a robust one, we've, we should probably have one first. Yeah, that uh, I was think good. So much of our congregational life is really about survival, or it's about just maintaining what we have and trying not to take any further steps backwards. When really, it's just a good reminder always that uh, God is the mover. Uh, God has the mission, and what all of us are trying to do, whether we're pastor people and, and entities of whatever kind of community life we have together, is we're joining what God is up to. And if we can, can kind of continue to keep that a focus for us, the rest of it, in a sense, should work out, uh, whatever that looks like. Um, that's, where the, that's where the life and that's where the energy is, not in trying to um, save the church. We can't save the church, um, but we can be part of God's redemptive work in the world. And that is exciting. That is very exciting. That is good. Yeah. So... Thank you, for everyone, for listening to this episode of Two Bald Pastors, where two follically challenged pastors talk about real life, real faith, and the intersection between the two. Thank you for listening. You can find this episode and many more on our website, twobaldpastors.com, where you can learn a little bit more about who we are and what our mission is in this world. You can also find ways to subscribe to our Uh, podcast through iTunes or listen to us on Stitcher Radio. So thank you. And if you really enjoyed our podcast, please give us a rating in iTunes. That really helps get our word out to the people who really would like to listen and and really need to listen to uh, some of the things that we are talking about here. So thank you once again and be blessed. They might not have hair, but they really do care about We're going to have like a kind of a material, maybe like a a board, like a flannel board. We're going to put (laughs) that on there and we're going to teach the Bible stories that way.